In this first Sunday of Lent, uh, we are beginning a, a new series that will take us through to uh, Easter Sunday, and that is looking at the seven last sayings of Jesus from the cross. And as we begin this season of Lent, I want to invite us to allow this to be a season where we shift our focus off of the doing. Because a lot about even our culture, it's kind of embedded in us that we tend to define ourselves by what we do and how productive we are. And, and even in churches, we can focus on do this and do this and do this. And we can get so caught up in the doing that we lose sight of the being, simply being followers of Jesus, simply being his children. And so with that, you know, last this past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. And in many church traditions, uh, you can go to a service on Ash Wednesday, and there will be the imposition of ashes on the forehead. And uh, I know it's very popular in Catholic churches, but also many Protestant churches as well. And as that is done, as those ashes are put on the forehead, there is one thing that is uttered to each person as those ashes are imparted, and that is, you are from dust, and to dust you shall return. That seems like a very chipper and happy thought. But it's also a solid and humble reminder of our humility, of the brevity of life, of how short life is, of just how small we are, in fact, in the sight of God. But as we think about that, that sense of you are from dust to dust you shall return, and this, this focus of, of even dying to self, we think about these last statements of Jesus from the cross. It's very fascinating to look at people's last words. Uh, you can find websites devoted to recording famous people and the, the final recorded words that they uttered before their death. And just one that I find fascinating from Leonardo da Vinci, whose last recorded words were, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. One of the greatest artists in human history, his final words, that he felt he'd offended God because, and humanity because his work didn't reach the level it should have. What were the last words of Jesus? Because there's a reason for them. Jesus is hanging on a cross in agony, and so he's not being flippant with his words, that the words that he utters from the cross are very deliberate and have significance. And this morning we begin in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, where Jesus makes this statement while he's hanging on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. Again, think about the scene. Here is Jesus who has been wrongfully uh, arrested and sentenced to death. He endured the agony of the flogging and the beating and everything that led up to actually going to Calvary. And he's at Calvary and he's nailed to a cross and he's put up to be mocked and ridiculed by all. And so the crowds who the day before were crying crucify, crucify are now gathered there to watch this criminal receive his punishment. And they're watching him delighting as they watch him breathe his final breaths. Surrounded by Roman guards who not only had been beating him for a good 
24 hours or so, or 12, 6, however many hours uh, he may have been in their custody. As they've been beating him and mocking him, remember, they're the ones who, after he had been ripped open, put a robe on him and rammed a crown of thorns on his head and began to mock his kingly status. Now these same guards mocking him as he hangs on the cross and they're, they're playing a game of dice to decide who gets to keep his garments. And as Jesus looks out over this crowd, now yes, there are some friendly faces in the crowd, but they are a vast minority. People who are delighting in his death, who are ridiculing him as he is dying. And he looks out over this crowd that is assembled including including the Roman guards who have been abusive to him for these past hours. It says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive these sins because they don't understand what they're doing. If we look at the epitome of Jesus demonstrating love for enemies, So much of what Jesus taught is being encapsulated here in this first saying from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And this is the moment when the true person comes out. When you are suffering, when you're in agony, and when you are close to your end, this is the moment where the real you comes out. Your real personality, that that part that maybe you've been hiding, this is where it all just comes out and the truth comes out. And notice what truth comes out of Jesus. Father, forgive them. I remember years ago sitting in the home of an elderly couple in the church I was at who uh, the husband had been a longtime Alliance pastor and was now greatly suffering with dementia and was barely coherent and sitting with his wife and talking to her, and he was just sitting off to the side, just staring off into nowhere. In the middle of my conversation with his wife, he just suddenly had this moment of clarity, and I forget the name of the person he was talking about, but he said, so-and-so really loved Jesus, and then he went back into this catatonic state. I just thought that was such a beautiful moment, that the truth of who he was and how he lived his life just flooded out in that moment. It wasn't, he didn't become this cantankerous, bitter old man, but the beauty of his heart for Jesus and people came out in that moment. And in this similar moment of agony and suffering for Jesus, he utters these words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It was Jesus who said back in Matthew chapter five, early in his ministry, Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love your enemies. 
Pray for those who persecute you. This is exactly what Jesus is embodying on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus again in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, but I say to you, here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. This is completely contrary to human nature. When somebody hates you, when somebody mistreats you, when somebody speaks evil of you, every inclination of our natural being is to get revenge on them, to speak evil of them, to do evil back to them, to settle the score with them. But Jesus comes with this teaching saying, no, I want you to love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who hate you. Paul carries this teaching of Jesus on in Romans chapter 12, verse 14. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. The sense of blessing and cursing. Cursing is speaking evil towards. And so the reverse of that is blessing, which is speaking positive things to, toward another. So Paul's applying the teachings of Jesus saying, don't go around saying negative things about your enemies, but say positive things about them. Yikes, really? the person who's running around maybe spreading lies about you or speaking evil about you, you're supposed to turn around and say positive things about that person? Positive things about the person who's trying to destroy you? But that's exactly what Jesus is getting at. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 20, it says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. So that person who hates you, that person who mistreats you, that person who persecutes you, that person who is doing evil towards you, if you find them in need, meet that need. In the first century, you can find this in accounts from Roman officials. So it wasn't just Christians writing about this, but even Roman historians who are observing this. That Christians were known for their unique love for their radical love, not only for each other, but for even the people who hated them. That was the mark of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the one who said that they're going to know that you're my followers based on the love that they see in your life. First Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. 1 Corinthians 4.12, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. Matthew 5.46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not, even, do not even the tax collectors do the same? What Jesus points out here, and we kind of touched on that a moment ago, but the tax collectors were the outcasts, the, the villains of the culture. Jesus says, think about the villains of your life story. They love the people they get along with. They love the people who love them. Jesus says that there's nothing distinctive about loving people who are nice to you. Jesus says, what's distinctive? What's distinctive about being my follower is having that same love for people who don't like you. People who actively are out to 
instill negativity into your life. Now, this isn't saying if you're in an abusive situation, just keep on enduring the abuse. This is just a general life principle that even the people who hate you, the people who make your life miserable, the people who frustrate you, the people who are gossiping about you, lying about you, people who are trying to tear you down, Jesus says, love them, bless them, serve them, minister to them. In fact, in Mark chapter 12, verse 31 Jesus is responding to the question, what is the greatest commandment? And obviously Jesus gives the, the obvious one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But again, he follows that in verse 31 saying, the second is this. So again, Jesus is asked, what is the single greatest commandment in the law? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But I can't end my answer there because it's not a one-off. It's a two-part answer. It's a two-sided coin. The first side of the coin is love God with everything you have, but the second part of it, and you have to have the second part of it, is basically what Jesus is saying, is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus couldn't consolidate the greatest command to just love God. Loving God, he said, alone isn't fulfilling the heart of God. Loving God is loving God and loving people. And I know I've shared these analogies before. I won't go into the specifics, but I spent years working in a Christian bookstore. And I saw pastors and elders and church leaders coming into that store on a daily basis, just Christians, people who love Jesus, coming in there every day. And what I saw working in a Christian bookstore compared to what I saw working in a secular bookstore the customers acted exactly the same. Rude, nasty, demeaning. And you see this rift, and here's people who love and follow Jesus, but they're treating their brothers and sisters in Christ like garbage. How is that? Walking in the way of Jesus. Again, the first century Christians were marked. Culture took note. Even the people who were actively hunting down to arrest and kill Christians said, these people, it's weird how much they love others. And it makes me reflect on my life, and it makes me reflect on the state of evangelicalism in America. Does the culture step back and say... Say what you want about those Christians. But their love is like any, nothing I've ever seen before. This is the love that Jesus is embodying as he looks out over a crowd that wanted and demanded him to be crucified. A crowd, remember, who when given the choice to have Jesus set free or a horrible criminal set free, or like, give us the horrible criminal. Give us the terrorist back. Crucify that prophet. He looks on those faces. <clears throat> he looks on the faces of the soldiers who are laughing and joking as they have been with him the entire time, ridiculing him, mocking him, seeking to completely humiliate and embarrass him. And he looks out over this group in the midst of his suffering and his agony and his fighting for his every breath, says, Father, forgive them. 
for they know not what they do. Just before he's arrested, before a night of brutal beating begins, before Jesus goes out to the garden to pray, he has this meal with his disciples. And he does something shocking in the midst of this meal. Here is Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God in human flesh, and he gets up from the table, takes on the attire of a slave, gets a basin of water and a towel, and he begins to wash the filthy feet of his disciples. Peter, to James, to John, all the way around the circle, every single last one of them, so let's not forget one set of feet that were around that table. The feet that in just a few moments we're going to get up from the table and go finish the plans to have Jesus arrested and put to death. Judas was around the table. And Jesus, fully knowing what Judas was planning, fully knowing what Judas was already intending on doing and getting ready to do, he comes over to Judas, takes his filthy feet, and begins to wash them and gently dry them and set them back in place. At no point does there seem to be any indication, and it would be against the very character of Jesus, to really grab tight to Judas's feet, to scrub them extra hard, to be aggressive with them, to glare up at him and say, I know what you're doing. I know what's in your heart. Jesus does nothing that causes the other disciples to say, well, that was weird. We have every reason to believe that Jesus comes to Judas just as gently, just as humbly, just as lovingly to the feet of Judas to serve Judas. This is the heart which hours later would look upon the crowd and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Love is a tricky thing. Love for enemy is a tricky thing. Loving our enemies is not something that we can put on our to-do list. They say, let me try harder to be nicer. Let me really just dig down deep and just go out of my way to love them. Because if you force that love, then it's just going to turn to greater resentment when that love is rejected. Remember, I began by saying that the season of Lent is inviting us to not focus on the doing. It's not about doing love. It's about loving from the heart. Remember what the Apostle Paul said about the fruit of the Spirit. The very first thing Paul says, the very first fruit of the Spirit, it, the fruit of the Spirit, the first thing he mentions isn't right doctrine, 
as important as right doctrine. And he, he didn't say that the fruit of the Spirit is standing firm for the truth, as important as that might be. He said the fruit of the Spirit, first of all, is love. Agape. Agape love. Agape love is this love that we don't really capture in our English sense of love. It is a love that chooses to self-sacrifice on behalf of the recipient of that love. Think about all the ways that Scripture defines the love of God. The the love of God that chooses to self-sacrifice for the recipient of the love. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How does that verse begin? God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners. While we were enemies of God, while we wanted nothing to do with God, while we would just assume mock and ridicule God, God demonstrates his agape towards us in sending his son choosing to self-sacrifice for the sake of the recipients of the love. That kind of love is something that comes from a transformed heart that doesn't react to people based on how, what they deserve or how they deserve to be treated, but a love that chooses to sacrifice self, to demonstrate love, to the other, even the enemy, even the persecutor. It's not about try harder to love. It's about surrendering to Jesus to say, I long for my heart to reflect your heart. I don't want to try to love people who hate. I want it to be a natural outflow of who I am. That it's not me trying, it's the Spirit just working through me. The the Spirit of the Christ who said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. For that Holy Spirit to just be at work through me, which requires that the Spirit take control of my heart. And so the season of Lent that's about reflection and fasting and preparation For me to say, Jesus, as I think about how I love others, as I think about how I love people who hate me, people who speak evil about me, people who lie about me, people who mistreat me, my love is not like your love. And it's not going to be that because I try harder at it. but by simply being in your presence and allowing you to transform my heart so that I naturally love those around me no matter how they treat me in response. Jesus' final words from the cross are not flippant. They are stated with a purpose. So Jesus, not casually, but deliberately, takes the effort to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Let's pray.